This is Aliens and Artists, part two of our conversation with Anonymous Experiencer One. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Eventually I came in those teen years, I would do this kind of like trial and error where I would try to figure out like what would work so that I wouldn't have an encounter at night. Do I leave the lights on in my room? I started doing that. I eventually, for whatever reason, I had this idea that I would cover the mirrors in my room because I had this kind of intuitive feeling that it somehow created an easier entry point if there was a large mirror in a dark room for some reason. And so I would throw a towel over the full-length mirror in my room. And strangely, I was kind of disturbed later on when I, sometimes I would leave the towel over the mirror during the day and not really think about it. And then at some certain point, I recognized that my then 10-year-old sister was putting a towel over her mirror as well in her room. And I remember saying like, well, why are you doing that? And I can't remember exactly what she said. Though she had less experience, she had her own kind of understanding of that there's something that we had to do in the house. The way that I came out of that situation was that I graduated high school. I moved out of the house pretty soon after graduation. I moved across the river to Minneapolis and started working. I think it was two years between high school and when I went off to art school in New York. There were definite experiences that happened after moving out of that house. I wouldn't say that things really shifted, but I think I'm at the point now where I can understand that I'm not perplexed by how that kind of energy could move from one place to another. I moved into a house with some friends in Minneapolis, and I was palling around with some folks. And one of my newer friends is this guy. Um, I don't think he would like his name used, but he and I were very close. He was actually like a couple of years ahead of me, and he lived so close to my high school that every once in a while, my mom would actually let me sleep over at his apartment because it was more likely that I would get to school on time if I slept over at his house <laughs> rather, than, rather than slept at our house, which was about a 20-minute drive away. Anyway, we became friends late in high school, and we hung out a lot after I graduated. And he and another one of my good friends both started experiencing paranormal phenomena around me. Every once in a while, things moving around or kind of like the sense that something was there or even sensing kind of like a ripple in the air. Or sometimes there would be audio phenomenon that would be strange. One pivotal thing from that time is that I fell out with him and it seemed like it was at least partially to do with this paranormal phenomenon happening around me or him experiencing strange paranormal occurrences around me. And it happened with another, there were actually two other friends that we all knew and all of them would experience strange stuff, but generally only around me. And it was clear amongst all of them that like I was the center point of this activity. And there was at least one point where this unnamed person he recounted to me later that he was walking up the stairs to his apartment 
and an apparition manifested directly in front of him as he was walking up the stairs and actually physically pushed him down the stairs. And it was shortly after that that we weren't hanging out as much anymore. When this event was broached between you two, was it a boiling point? Did he specifically cite this instance as the straw that broke the camel's back? Implicitly, it seems obvious how disruptive that may have been, but was he able to name it in that fashion at the time? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, the next time I came over, he was very freaked out about it and relating it to me. And he definitely indicated that he, I can't remember the specific wording, but he, something along the lines of like, this is happening because of you, or this is your fault or something like that. I don't know that he used the word fault with regard to me, but he was definitely pinning it on me. And I did not doubt that it was largely because of me or that I had something to do with it. He had not experienced anything like that beforehand, whereas I definitely had. Other friends hadn't experienced anything like that beforehand, but I definitely had. I look back and to this day, like, I think, well, yeah, like, I can't doubt. It would be very hard to deny that I've been a lightning rod for this kind of entryway into this realm, I guess you'd say, for much of my life. You're the common denominator. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I was definitely, I remember being very honest about that at the time and being like, yeah, well, it probably is, you know, (laughs) you know, that is, it probably is me. Yeah, you're, yeah, I experienced it. You haven't. Here we are. And um, he stopped calling as much. Like we had been hanging out like several times a week, you know, at that point, quite a lot, you know, as guys tend to do in their late teens and early 20s, you know, kind of pal around a whole lot. And I stopped getting called as much. I would call him. I would, you know, get his answering machine. <laughs> and I fell out with one of the one of the other two guys around that point, too. He later became like a born-again Christian and apparently said that this was one of the reasons why he turned to Christianity was because he had this understanding that there were malevolent spirits and that there was some kind of like truth to that within what he understood of Christianity at the time. And that like went on to kind of like affect his life for years to come. I don't know if he's still like that, but I know that that shaped much of his 20s. Now sharing her perspective, this is his mother. I will say that there were times where I had a sense that he was more isolated than his peers, that there was a sense of being different that was magnified or exponentially more so than what the normal adolescent uh, coming into self and feeling, oh, I'm different, no one's like me, and how that manifests itself in its relationships, some relationships being able to sustain who he was and how he was and other relationships not being able to sustain that truth. And um, my sense that, you know, all of us hide aspects of ourselves. My sense is that that there was a, a unique and extenuating vulnerability there. I have to say that there is a lot of rage, anger that I have about this the inability to 
be able to maintain control over your own body, I think for anyone is it's absolutely necessary. And when that's violated, anger and fear and why me? I mean, all of that is is a ball of a mode of response to that. And then if you layer on, I mean, just personally for me and for experience too, of, of being in a relationship that was you know, to work so hard at ma maintaining your own safety and security boundary in agency and to have a sense that you can't keep things out of your own home, you can't keep things off your own body, you can't, you can't turn off the light at night and just be um, that you are, that you are not able to talk about it with others i mean and that's a boundary you put up yourself but there's so many layers of the way in which it diminishes that's too weak a word it's one thing for something horrific to happen accidentally there's something else when it involves intention on another's being and that level of malevolence attack, assault, and for it to be primarily, at least for the first decades of it, my sense of having a child that I couldn't protect. On the very base level, it's about protection and what you want for your children. But then there's, if you go out even kind of out from that, there's the sense of what you hope for for your child in terms of their life, a foundational fear and need for protection, and then the one of being able to create boundaries and security, I would say it's a primal one. One of the things I'll just mention briefly is that I had been kind of told or taught or came to a sense that the more and more you acknowledge the rage, the more you had negative emotion about it, the more it invited the entities in. And so that's another component of my protection of not naming what my feelings are. Because when I think too much about this or when I feel too much about it, or especially when I do both, it feels like I'm at least more aware. If it doesn't happen more, I'm at least more aware that it does. And I don't want it. So equanimity is a kind of protection. Yes, yes. And I don't think it's effective, necessarily. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, it's an, but it's an effort. It's a stab. You know, it was to your thing about what should we do about this. Well, this is what I tried, and I've got to tell you, it didn't work so well. <laughs> <laughs> I love that honesty. Back to Anonymous Experiencer 1. Well, how did that feel up until this point? You have contended with a lot. Yeah. You've developed the intelligence and coping strategies to navigate what to you probably feels like a normal life because that's the life you have always known. But increasingly, as life goes on, there seems to be a more negative feedback loop. And this period of losing friends because of the phenomena appears to be an acute fulcrum where the negative from your 
unique personhood and what orbits around you, that seems to be quite strong. I mean, to lose a couple of your best friends, what was that like? It was so hard to lose friends at that point. It was um, nightmarish, I'd say. I think a lot of people would term the phenomena itself as nightmarish. And certainly, you know, at points I would absolutely 100% agree with that. But the point where that starts to affect other people around me or causes me caused me to lose friendships was something that I had worried might happen when I was younger. And then seeing it actually happen, um, experiencing that was very, very hard to deal with. You know, maybe I just, because as you said, like, that was the only life that I knew at that point. That stuff had become normal to me. Those situations had become kind of normal to me. But they, I realized very quickly that those were not normal to other people and that other people were not as able to acclimate to them as seemingly I was, even though I was like certainly disturbed by them as well. But I started to take that as like what life had thrown at me. Other people weren't quite so ready to do that. And considering that they could point a finger and be like, well, that's the guy, that's where it's coming from. It's coming from me. It also was troubling at the time because I couldn't blame them. I couldn't blame them for not wanting to hang out with me. I couldn't blame them for not wanting to be around me or wanting to have that not happen anymore. I could understand how if I could snap my fingers and stop accepting phone calls from the phenomena, maybe I would have done that. But there I was, you know, I couldn't turn it off myself. I didn't know how to turn it off myself. And I was almost, in some ways, and maybe I was almost jealous because they knew how to turn it off. And the way for them to turn it off was just to turn me off, you know? Yeah, and you don't have that luxury. But you do have the double burden of the phenomena being with you, ostensibly to stay. Now, it seems that not only do you carry that, but it, it feels like you'll have to do it all alone. Yeah. To be close to someone is to risk alienating them permanently. Yeah, absolutely. And even after that happened, I even, the one of those three other friends, the two kind of stopped hanging out with me. And the other one, I was actually in a band with that other guy at the time. And he continued to be a friend for years to come. But um, we were in a band at that point. And after a, few, a couple months after I started, I, after I stopped hanging out with those other two guys, like I actually quit the band and I... And the reason I told myself I was doing that and actually told him I was doing that was because I just didn't think that having that kind of energy around was good for anybody else. Let's shift lanes here a bit. How does contact evolve as a lifelong experiencer? Do you feel these entities have gotten more adept at their job, so to speak? Have they improved at the objectives they're trying to achieve, whether that's how they abduct people or how they communicate with humans. Do you feel that they have refined their skill set? Oh, absolutely. I think so. I mean, looking back at the, looking back over time, I feel like even different entities or different types of entities improved or evolved their 
tactics or their dialogue or their interaction, however you'd like to frame it. I think, well, for example, with the the gray or gray adjacent kind of beings and you know i mean one thing is that i don't consciously remember seeing a mantis being until i was in my late 20s and so there's the question of was that a development of maturation is that something where those beings were kind of behind some of these events as some people surmise or guess were those people behind some of these events this whole time, but they were just in another room? Maybe they didn't feel like it was proper or even necessary for them to be talking to a 15-year-old kid. So there is, in the way that some of the, a lot of those are kind of like medical exchanges or medical procedures and things like that, you know, it, I'm reminded a little bit in talking about it, it's like, when you have a doctor and your parents talk to the doctor when you're young and then eventually you're you're old enough to to speak to the doctor yourself maybe there's something like that going on there i'm not sure there's that there's though it could it could also be several overlapping programs you know that's possible as well i don't believe that each mantis that i've communicated with or interacted with physically was necessarily the same guys with the white robes, well, the kind of white lab coat style standing over me at various points. So uh, there's that. There's, as far as advancing tactics go, when I was younger, there was more of a, when I was very young, when I was a kid, there were more beings in the room. As I got older, at the beginning of an abduction or or contact experience. So we're talking about situations where I'm kind of swooped up in the middle of the night at some point, generally speaking. So early on, I remember more beings in the room as being a thing. Later on, I, I remembered more the onset would be a tone or a series of tones that would either kind of ring out in the room or would be in my head. It would seem to almost emanate within my head or as if somebody had directed a tone to ring out just for me and me alone. Though sometimes it would ring out in the room. And also sometimes there would be a low bass hum. Actually, often that happened, this kind of low bass hum that seemed ambient, almost as if it was just outside the room that I was in. And then later, I wouldn't notice the hum as much or the hum wouldn't be there. And over time, over the last, I'd say, 20 years, there's less of that onset of the hum and there's more of a flash. So in the last, say, since I was about 27 or 28, I guess, it went from being a hum to being a flash the flash would sometimes, like the hum, seem like it came from nowhere within the room, but would fill the room. And sometimes it felt like the flash just happened right in front of my eyes, or almost happened behind my eyes in some way that I don't understand. And I recognized the flash was particularly powerful in terms of getting me very tired very quickly. So if I resisted one flash, 
you know, I could often resist the kind of power of that flash to kind of make me fall unconscious or make me fall asleep. I would feel very tired within seconds after one of those flashes happening. And, but sometimes I would resist and that feeling of not tonight, I'm getting my hair done or whatever, you know, <laughs> but I, <laughs> you know, often it's the wrong night. It's usually in the moment, it feels like the wrong night for something like that to be happening in some way, shape or form. There's no scheduling happening there. So if I resisted one flash, then another flash would happen. And if that second flash happened, I was, I was a gone, I was a goner in terms of my consciousness. I would fall asleep almost immediately. And one issue that I recognize later on is that if I, if I made it through two or even three of those flashes in the morning, I would have just a killer headache, just a killer headache. What's the means by which you resist the flash? Is it simply willpower and resolve, or is there a somatic technique you discovered? I mean, what is it like when you are successful in resisting a flash or two? That's a good question. I, I think it's a combination of several things. It's mainly resolve. It's a bit of that feeling of you're in the studio, it's late at night, and you just if you just power through for one more hour, you can get this piece done. You know what I mean? And there's that, there's those moments where you're, you're just about to say, fuck it, I'm going home or fuck it, I'm going to bed. And you just snap yourself out of it. However you need to do it mentally, that kind of that snap where you're like, no, no, I'm doing it. I'm doing it. That just that brief second of kind of snapping yourself back into shape is part of it. And also the, I guess, I take a few deep breaths. That seems to help. Um, if I want to kind of stay there, stay in, in present. Also, beginning to try to communicate with them because I'm relatively sure that they're, whoever is out there is monitoring whatever's happening with my physiology and my brain at that point. So I start saying like, I sometimes say like, I'd really rather not do this tonight. <laughs> or things along those lines. And sometimes I, I don't resist as much. I recognized over the years that, generally speaking, that was futile for the most part. So I guess the, those would be the main things, like a little bit of a breath, snapping myself into shape, and, and trying to actively respond. You know, there's the thing where people try to keep people out of... You're watching a TV show and... and there's an ER situation and people are trying to keep people talking so they don't fall unconscious. Maybe I think the like trying to communicate, it does seem to keep myself awake, if nothing else, for a moment. At, at first, I think, I think in the early years, it was more about trying to resist and then or try to stop the experience from happening. And then later on, it became also more about just wanting to remember more of it consciously. So because over the years, I learned to accept the experience for what it was and that, you know, after all those years of sleepless nights or whatever, I, I'm still waking up with all my fingers and toes. <laughs> I'm still here. There's the trauma of it, but then it's, uh, I, it, it could be, you know, it, it, it never, 
even as in my worst fears, it never worked out to be anywhere near as bad as as I anticipated in terms of issues that way. And in fact, over time, it, it seems like it's gotten more humane and more on the level, I guess you'd say, in a way. That's a fascinating dynamic. On the one hand, there's the arc of how their methods have evolved to facilitate contact. And the inner corollary that companions that is that they have improved in their ability to recognize the traumatic aspects for an experiencer. Have they adjusted how they relate to people in order to minimize or diminish the amount of fear or pain? We hear this strange detail often. They tell an experiencer, we're not going to hurt you. Then a procedure occurs. It does hurt. The person protests vehemently, freaks out, and then the doctor entity presiding over the procedure administers something, perhaps via a deep gaze or the wave of a wand, which then eliminates all the pain. The fair question is, why don't they do that to begin with? If they have that power, why not do away with all the pain? Is it fair to say you feel they have made advances in this regard? Have has there been progress? Oh, um, yeah, I think so, at least in my case. I mean, for example, just the other day, I, I sent you, I think I sent you a picture where my partner found like a triangle mark, like three marks on my leg. And I don't know what else that would have been. I, of course, and my partner actually has a pretty good track record of finding anomalous marks on my body after situations. Half the time I, anymore in the last five, 10 years, I don't even remember a, a damn thing. I don't remember the beginning. I don't remember the end. I'll have a vague sense that something happened and sometimes I see a mark. But it's interesting because at the same time that that's occurring, there, there have been experiences outside of that, like say a man to showing up in, in my house and basically saying, like, do you have any questions for me? Where there's kind of like, there's kind of a separation going on where it's like, okay, they're on the one hand, it seems that they're making the experiences more fluid in a way. And that there could be an element of complicity on my part in that I could be either subconsciously or consciously saying like, well, maybe I can recall these later through hypnotherapy or whatever, but I don't need to know them right now for the purposes of tomorrow or whatever. Because I do realize that that even with it, even if it's like the best experience ever, even if it's the most mind-blowing, interesting, phenomenological breakthrough with regard to uh, situations like this, it still derails the next day almost always, you know, it, it derails part of the next day at the very least. At least the day starts off in a very different way than it normally would. And so I think that there's, there may be more of an awareness of that on their part over the years. And possibly that as I've matured or gotten older, that they have more respect for that as well, either because of exchanges we've had or just purely because of the the march of time or just because they've gotten better at it or you know there's there's other there's other speculation we could have like maybe maybe it's harder to predict or control the behavior and physiology of children that could be part of it as well 
but it certainly does seem like they've gotten better and weirdly more respectful over the years, which is an interesting element. I think there's 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 other strategies too. I mean, I think one one other thing is that it seems that the few times that entities are, I mean, when entities are physically present um, in, uh, say, now like my condo or whatever, there's it's interesting to me that there's less grays or gray adjacent type beings, and it's not just that there have been physically present mantids, but then the but then they've also it seems also in the last years that they've employed using hybrids or hu- like hybrid hybrid um, beings as well in those kinds of situations, which may be kind of along the lines of what you in our last conversation i was joking around about how the grays aren't particularly gifted adapters or improvisers and i think that that may be an adaptation that the program overall has made in terms of because if you do use it i mean humans are incredibly adaptable we're amazing improvisers i would guess that that a lot of hybrids are probably though they're project they're portrayed as daft often but really what is the daftness i mean to go on a slight tangent the daftness of hybrids is like a really strange thing because to read about some of these cases it's kind of like you imagine somebody growing up uh in some other dimension some other frequency maybe maybe even having like a tiny apartment at some point for for a, a bit of time here and then somebody being like you've never heard of nirvana you know what i mean there's uh <laughs> you know there's like some of the deafness seems to be like largely about cultural adaptation and you know there's situations where you know i've read accounts of hybrids being surprised to see like a dog on a leash or something like that it's like well of course of course it might be surprising to see a dog on a leash it might be surprising to see a dog in general you know (laughs) cycling out some grays cycling in some hybrids who have a modicum of spontaneity makes sense provides more latitude for a genuine relationship i also feel like the fact that a mantid asked you do you have any questions is a profound milestone Reflecting on centuries or millennia of contact, that is perhaps the question we most long to be asked as experiencers. First to be recognized and to be asked anything about contact. But secondly, the open-ended question of, do you have any questions? (laughs) I mean, how many thousands of experiencers would love to be asked that? That you were asked that seems a salient point of encouragement. When you consider that being posed, that question to you, do you feel it was unique to your history or could it be indicative of a more general change in tack on their part? Yeah, um, that's a good, that's a great question. Um, I think, interestingly, we had recently moved. I had started taking up meditation more seriously just months before that. And I'd also, now that I'm thinking about it, I just shifted my diet. I, through my 20s and 30s, I went back and forth between being vegetarian and not. And my partner and I had recently 
resolve to go vegetarian again. So there could have been something about between the meditation and the diet, there may have been something there that was kind of pinging for them somehow. And I think that I'd moved out of an area of Brooklyn that I'd, that I'd been in and out of for years. And I had a kind of sense of resolve that I was going to do something different in moving here. And that I was going to, one of the things that I, that I didn't, I'd got, that had gotten old about being in that area of Brooklyn is that in this neighborhood, I would just turn a corner and be like, oh yeah, I, you know, I remember going to a party there and breaking up with a girl there and, you know, this, 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 and the other thing. And it was so tied to my, my twenties in a way, this area that I was living in at that point. I'd moved out of that neighborhood and moved back. At a certain point, I was just like, I need, I need a different neighborhood. I need a different, I need a place that I barely know at all. I need to have that sense of discovery again. And I think it'll really stir something up in a good way. I had a few experiences right after that move that, including that one, uh, the, the, do you have any questions experience? And so I think there's definitely something to that. This is Experiencer One's partner, recounting a missing time event which she and he shared. Like it was a strange, like vivid night. I was coming home from Manhattan to, you know, coming coming home. There's this element that I'm not 100% sure of. I don't know if I came home and he was he was asleep but I think that honestly, I had gone straight to like go to a bookstore and saw like a shining thing in the sky. Now, honestly, at the time, I was really amazed. But if you asked me now, it was a mylar balloon. It was slow. It was just flashing in the sun. So there was nothing really that it, it was a common mistake. I really honestly think I saw a mylar balloon and I walked around the neighborhood, just following it with a camera, you know, like amateur, you know, just, but I, I was very, very transfixed. And at any rate, when I got home from this bookstore and got back, he was asleep on the bed, which I could see from the street and I could not wake him up. Like I was banging on the window, three feet, four feet from him, I can't remember. Banging on the window, took my keys, wrapping it against a metal you know, window frame, nothing. He could not wake him up, walked away, wasted time for maybe like another half hour until I got him on text, you know, whatever, and, and came back and it was really weird. He was just really out of it. And he thought it was weird that he was so, that he'd fallen asleep like that. Fine. The next day we woke up and hung out for a while chatting. It seemed around 8.30 to me. You know, we were lounging around. It was a Saturday and just languorous and paused in the conversation. And then all of a sudden it was like 11. It was just, two and a half hours gone. And we both, neither one of us thought we'd fallen asleep. And neither one of us thought we dozed off even. I mean, like there was a, a sort of like a, I guess a 
dozing off, but not that feeling where you fall asleep. It was just suddenly like, I really, in my perception, paused in the conversation and in two and a half hours, we're just gone. Okay, so what was the last moment that preceded this missing time? And what was the first moment coming out of it? Did you literally wake up? Or do you feel that you were in the middle of a conversation and suddenly there's two and a half hours gone? To be honest, um, there was a lapse in conversation. We both closed our eyes and stopped talking and I felt really relaxed. <laughs> but it it wasn't, but, but then when we sort of began talking again and checked our watches, I, I gotta say like, they're just, I wouldn't be surprised if I felt like I'd fallen asleep, but I hadn't felt like I fell asleep. I didn't feel like... Did he feel like he'd fallen asleep? No, that's why we were both a little shocked. What were you talking about? I don't know. Um, I honestly think we might have been talking about Alex Collier, but I'm not totally sure. <laughs> so what was the emotional quality when you opened your eyes and you both realized Two and a half hours had gone, and neither of you think you've fallen asleep. What did you feel? It is that moment where you're like, is this a joke? <laughs> because you're incredulous, but you're not like, you're, you're not really feeling any emotion yet. It, you, you know, I honestly didn't know whether to feel like I was the butt of a joke or where, I, you know, it was just weird. It, you don't know how to feel. It's just suddenly the clock says something that doesn't make any sense. How do you feel about it now? I still don't know how to feel. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't have any bad, it was a really nice morning. It's just definitely one of the, and, and honestly, like, I'm not gonna push the subject too hard. Ain't no proof. <laughs> you can't say shit. So many of these experiences, you just can't say shit. It was a shared experience, though. So yeah. that, that puts it into a different category. Yeah. Granted, he's got the bingo card of paranormal experiences. But when you have a shared anomalous experience like that, trying to figure out how two people's perceptions synchronized into temporal distortion is really hard to do. In the years going forward, as you gain a deeper understanding of his history, did that change or color how you interpret the missing time experience? Did you worry these things would increasingly happen to you as well? Did you feel spooked? No, I have not. I have felt like um, consistently like probably the, the person that gets put to sleep first. So <laughs> honestly. Um... Are you glad for that? Do you feel left out or more relieved? Okay, let me get a grip on that question because that's a good question. Uh, do I feel left out? No. I feel obviously like there's just a lot more to the story that I have yet to find out, to be honest. Um, I don't know what part I play in, in anything. I, I, I mean, I, I believe in like a, you know, a sort of infinite soul in many lifetimes. So I have yet to find out what any of my previous lifetimes were like. I spoke with his mother, as you know, and one of the things she wanted to be sure to express 
is the rage and anger she feels over the trauma and violation, not being able to protect her son. You, on the other hand, seem to have an openness and curiosity. It doesn't seem to have been unsettling for your life. Have you been left undisturbed by this? Have you found it to be manageable? Yeah, yeah, I'm, um, well, I don't, I, I, I was gonna say, I'm pretty even Steven in a braggy kind of way, but honestly, um, I think like it's, it's been very changing or very pivotal. It's really led me into like a whole seeking mode of life where I see the universe in quite a different way. And I mean, I, I'm not going to attribute that all. Okay. Like I, um, began like my own seeking, my own reading list, my own set of enthusiasms. And, um, I mean, it definitely started with this, with the kind of just like the ripping open of our reality from talking to him. It's definitely led me into like a different phase of my life and a definitely more interesting one. I appreciate it. But no, it hasn't been traumatic. Back to Anonymous Experiencer 1. It makes me think of how these various entities respond to the expression and cultivation of human agency. For instance, what you related there, a series of choices, decisions, taking the initiative to change your diet, actively adjusting your worldview, meditation, moving to a new neighborhood, a domino effect of expressions of agency, of will. Perhaps the modulation that in the contact was in response to your change in your life, participating more fully with them, becoming a better partner to them, perhaps. I think about this a lot. What's the most beneficial way to go from being a passive victim to trying to claim your sovereignty? But having claimed that sovereignty, engaging in a deeper relationship with these entities, how do we make the best of it? You seem to be a success story in this regard. Is that true? Yeah, I do. It's only been the last three or four years that it felt like it really, but it's been a, a huge shift, a big turnaround. and the experience and i agree with you I, it is interesting and I, I i do think that meditation has a lot to do with it actually i don't want to tie it too much to that but i think that that has i think that there's a groundedness there i think maybe part of the respect of agency or the maturation process you know i'm i remember remembering plenty of times in my 20s and 30s where i could just kind of feel the mental eye rolls from various entities, you know, the, um, just like, oh my God, he's still like this, really, you know? <laughs> um, and I think that like the one, like one thing there that maybe they didn't understand and then came to understand, or maybe you could be negative and say, well, maybe they probably didn't care or whatever, but I feel like they're still wrapping their head around human emotions in general or the range of human emotions and things like, it seems like they do understand trauma, for example. I mean, like there's the obvious data point where a lot of people that experience abduction 
syndrome, <laughs> if you're going to call it that, experience a program like that already have trauma in their lives. So there's, there seems to be some kind of basic awareness where it's almost something that they prefer to deal with because they're not introduced maybe they're not introducing trauma into somebody's life. You know, they're like, well, it's already there, so. This is the $64,000 question, right? One needn't search long or deeply to observe a direct corollary between contact, abduction, and the fact that experiencers have trauma in their childhood, trauma in their lives. There's apparently something about trauma in childhood which acts upon the consciousness of the experiencer in a way that benefits the entities. So this is not to say they wish for people to be traumatized necessarily, but the result of that trauma somehow aids their objectives, the work they need to do. That's one interpretation. Another would be that we have a camouflage of sorts. If you go to the David Jacobs end of the pool, that probably the trauma that exists in these children, their families, which is intergenerational, that history of having entities fuck with your family for so long destabilizes the family dynamic, then contributes to or augments these other adjacent disturbances, alcohol and drug abuse, divorces, all of the epigenetic story, the outcomes of non-human entities mingling with families. Put that on the David Jacobs end. Then perhaps on the other end of the spectrum, we would have someone like a Barbara Lamb who feels the entities are benevolent. Where do you feel you fall on that spectrum when you take in the whole picture. Yeah, I don't think that, I don't feel at all that there's a concerted effort to destroy families or something like that. And in fact, in, in my experience, um, my mother, I think I may have mentioned this, that my mother had one experience about, one consciously recalled experience about two years before I was born where she was floated out a window and she doesn't remember anything after that. And that's, and that's something that she didn't tell me until I was in my 30s, I think. And I asked her if she remembered any other details about it. She said that it felt as if, as she was going out the window, it felt as if she had moved into some kind of other reality and that there was some kind of conflict. She sensed some kind of conflict, like a like a, almost like a battle or a war happening somewhere. That was the kind of association that she had. But she said she felt like she moved into some other kind of reality as she went through the window. I was born two years later. And she doesn't have any other experience like that that she can recall. But, of course, it's hard for me not to correlate that with my experience. Well, it's fascinating she didn't share that with you until you were in your 30s. I'm not implying that was willfully withheld. We see this type of counterintuitive response often. There was all this high strangeness going on in your life, and yet she didn't think to share that event with you. There's a delayed unveiling. Some of the most profound experiences in their lives are inaccessible to experiencers until much later. Did your mom remark on this facet like... I don't know why I haven't told you this, but... Yeah, I think it did feel noteworthy to her, but she, yeah, I, she did seem a little surprised that she hadn't mentioned it, but I, it, somehow it didn't seem like it had unlocked in her brain somehow. Um, 
And I think uh, to your point, interestingly, I, I didn't talk to her about, um, I talked to her about like spirits, you know, and of course we had the shared haunting situation um, when I was young and there were seeming kind of inter interdimensional entities or something along those lines in my late teens and she experienced that as well. But I didn't talk to her about the ETs until even later than that. I, I, I'm, I don't think, I don't think I talked to her about about, well, you know what? Actually, I do think that I talked to her about the grays initially and like when it, maybe when it happened, when I was that young, I said something about it. And I don't remember how that conversation went, but I don't think it registered for, I don't recall it and I have a pretty good memory of of situations like that and and she doesn't remember i mean when we started regularly talking about my experience with physical non-human entities regularly in my 30s she kind of swore up and down that i that she didn't recall me talking about them when i was young just the interdimensionals or the the kind of spirit forms and that may be true, you know, I think that there is an element where, you know, there's one thing, which is that, like, they they basically tell you that this is a big secret. You're not really supposed to talk <laughs> about it. And so I think that there is an element where I was like a really obedient kid. OK, like I didn't I also do things that were like wrong. You know, the other kids in the neighborhood, you know, they'd take money out of their mom's purse or whatever, or make the, or like throw rocks at another kid or like a squirrel or whatever the heck. And I just never was wired that way. Um, and I just had this mentality when I, when I was a kid where I was like, well, why would you want to do something that makes somebody feel bad? That seems like a terrible idea, you know? So, and I, I never really, it was until my late teens before I ever did anything like sneak out of the house. And that was through an enormous amount of peer pressure that I started doing stuff like that, you know, and it wasn't because I was, you know, I'm still, you know, I'm an artist. I kind of exist in that form in that version of society, generally speaking, I don't put on a tie to go to work in the morning, though increasingly few people do, you know, I never, but I never viewed that as rebellion in a way. So that's to say that, like, I feel like I'm a nonconformist, but I'm also not a particularly rebellious person. There's kind of a mix there where I feel like I'm just being more, I'm just being myself, if that makes sense. It's not really, it's not really oppositional. It's more just being myself. And I think that that was hard to put a finger on when I was younger. But as I get older, you know, you get more comfortable and and kind of frame and thinking about it that way because it seems. You know, it's like a the way that you develop your your mind it turns over the years it turns into like a it's malleable but there's an element where there's like kind of the comfy pair of shoes element where you know yourself you know yourself more than you did five years ago i mean when i think about where i was even just five years ago versus now it's 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 pretty amazing right um 
Let me circle back a bit and ask you about the vegetarian element. This is such a funny little plot point in how people change. Granted, when a person is practicing meditation and personal development, there is a lot of self-reflexive examination, growing, changing. Vegetarianism is more likely to be on the radar of seekers, aside from contact and abduction. However, we do see again and again that contactees and abductees seem to have a higher ratio of vegetarianism, often motivated by some aspect of their experiences. You related you've gone back and forth with it. We've heard many instances where contact seems to lead to increased sensitivity to the inner life of the animals we eat. Something arrives where the inner world of cows or pigs means we can't eat them anymore. So what is it for you? Did contact factor in that life choice? I think that's a great question. I think I, I think it has a lot to do with the contact experience, actually. I think on a basic level, I guess that there's the element of realizing that animals in situations like that don't have agency themselves. And so there's the kind of simple corollary where you feel empathy for other beings that are doing things that they don't want to do or need it or have to do things that they don't want to do. So from like the early part of contact experience where it's, for me, it was more traumatic. I think that there's that. There's also, as you're saying, the elements of uh, kind of awareness of the interiority of the, of the, of the animal. I don't think of myself as like a particularly righteous person, you know, but, but I think that there's just this, a, a kind of basic form of empathy there. I think that over time with contact experience, there's a, there's an element where either it's there to begin with, or it develops over time. Uh, sometimes I jokingly refer to it as that they leave the radio on when they leave. <laughs> and that the, that there's more sensitivity, uh, not in terms of like the basic form of sensitivity, but empath, empathic experience that kind of went in all sorts of different directions as an adult, um, ways that that permeated my experience. Like, for example, it's very difficult. I would find ways to only take the subway when it wasn't rush hour, because like I literally couldn't be within the kind of one foot physical proximity with so many people because I just kept feeling their feelings or like having like errant sentences, like loud thoughts popping up into my head. And it was really disconcerting, you know, and sometimes it feels like you're, you're picking up on things that you shouldn't be picking up on. Sometimes it feels like it just feels dirty because like you're, you're picking up other people's psychic baggage and you don't want that. And there's an element to that with the food as well, I think, where I just felt there came a point where I would like eat beef or something like that and just feel and like I like the taste of it. I mean, we're wired evolutionarily to enjoy the taste of it, like generally speaking. But um, I would just feel the kind of it got to a point where I started I would feel like an hour after the meal, I would feel the kind of like bits of the kind of 
trauma of the animal itself or something like that. And it was a difficult thing to dis it was a difficult thing to articulate at the moment, like, but I would just feel this kind of sinking feeling, this sadness. I used to think, well, maybe that was because of the person that made it. Like, because often in those days I was getting like delivery or I was eating out and things like that. And I thought, I at that time I attributed it initially to that old adage about making things with love. And that when my partner makes food, it feels good. But then when I eat this food, it feels bad. And then kind of through the process of elimination, I realized that, no, it's the meat. Well, there's two valences in this consideration. One is the trauma of the animal. There's a subtle etheric dimension to any sentient being. People, dogs, cows, pigs, all have subtle bodies. When co-mingling our interiors in this fashion, the sensitivity that's developed in contact can change the way we experience food and animals. Then there's this other part, which is one of the reliable consistencies that's been stable over time in contact from a host of entities is this message, which is, you're fucking destroying your world. Stop it. We hear versions of that over and over from them. That message is closely tied to this issue of vegetarianism because, as we know, our food systems are braided with suffering and degradation. I'm not righteous either. I'm not excited to talk about this stuff, but it comes up again and again. Reluctant experiencers who are not excited to take the bullhorn and state clearly that the food system is tied to our forfeiture of our sovereignty, not just the animals. So, to what degree have you felt compelled? or impelled to state that more often or more freely? Do you still feel like you'd rather keep it private and personal? Does it bum you out that this issue is in the mix? Oh, it, it definitely bums me out. It definitely bums me out. There's no two ways about that. And I, I do, I completely agree with you that there's some of the central messaging that I've received over the years is definitely that that we're hurting our own planet and that we're that things are going the wrong way that way i particularly for whatever reason i feel like i get clear alarm about the water about the oceans and things like that and i'm sure that that's the tip of the iceberg but there's a lot that way that's has been in the messaging uh, both with the folks in the hybridization program whoever that is also with even just the kind of telepathic contact that happens through deep meditation with that messaging is also there it's it's almost as if it's like a broken record you know like it just it just keeps coming through it keeps coming through and it's and the messaging is actually very layered because sometimes it's something as simple as that and then other times they'll I get messaging that I don't know if you feel this way, but there's there's ways that you can kind of start to discern the voice of the of who is communicating with you. It's partially sometimes it's literally sounds like a voice. Sometimes it's that just through telepathic contact, there is a linking of of the mind where you get a sense of the 
psychology of the person behind it or the entity behind it, kind of like the edges of their how how they're looking at what you're saying even there's there's this kind of reciprocity that people don't really describe often where you're kind of caught in this feedback situation where it's not just what they're communicating it's that also when you're in telepathic union with an entity like that that you get a little bit of mental feedback just from what you're saying like what we were talking about earlier, like the mental eye rolls and things like that, you know, there's, there's elements like that where you, you, which are very helpful because when we're in physical proximity to each other, we depend on like micro expressions for things like that. And we hope that we're accurate in, in understanding people's micro expressions all the time. Right. Like, is this, is this girl actually interested in me? You know what I mean? Like, is my kid going to listen to me or <laughs> whatever, right? So it's interesting with that, but, but some of the messaging seems one critical component of that is that a lot of these entities seem to be beyond time in some way. Either they have an understanding beyond time, maybe they got some message from somebody else that's beyond time, maybe they're beyond time themselves. But along with the idea of telepathy, there's also this element where where so many non-human entities don't seem to experience time quite the way we do, right? And a lot of them, it's they seem to have pretty accurate predictions. Like, for example, last year, one voice was coming up a lot in my meditation, and it was saying, you're not going to want to be in New York in April of 2020. You're going to want to be gone. You're going to be wanting to go. And like, I told my mother about this. I told my partner about this. I was like, I don't know what it is. I know people are going to die. And I know that it's, I get the feeling of death. I don't know why. I asked why. They were like, it's better that you don't know. Like, why would I, why is it better if I don't know? <laughs> you know? Um, and then here, you know, 2020 happened, obviously. You know, I didn't set foot in Manhattan for April of 2020 because there was the hotspot for the pandemic. And, you know, after, as that happened, I, that that same voice popped back in again and was like, see, told you, essentially, not exactly that, but, you know, basically that. And then kind of gave me like a basic piece of information on well, reiterated, actually, a piece of information on where it'd be better for me to live later on. And, you know, it's it's the kind of thing where it's like I hadn't gotten such a concrete piece of information. Like, don't go, you're not going to want to go into the city in April of 2020, you know, you know, a year ahead of time. You know, I don't know that I would have necessarily, it's true, I wouldn't have listened to that voice at all. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have given that voice necessarily the time of day when it came to telling me that like, oh, you should move, you should move. And so, but now after having had that experience, like I think about it almost every day, you know, I'm like, should I move? You know, should we move? My partner has like a really great job in Manhattan. And these days, you know, a great job in the fall of 2020, after all of these furloughs and things, you don't just drop a great job, a, a great well-paying job in, in this kind of environment here in America in fall of 2020, right? So it's, um, you know, it's something to think about. 
I think I wandered away from the point a little bit, but um, yeah. It's all fascinating. Let's drill in a bit on art and creativity, if we may. How does art figure in your metabolizing these experiences? Has your art modulated over time in order to accommodate the enigmatic nature of the phenomena? Were your experiences a source of artistic inspiration? Did anything about being an experiencer demand or evoke a new depth from your creative well? How has your art been changed or not been changed by this? Sure. I think, I think an interesting thing there is that, you know, I, I knew when I was, by the time I was in fifth grade, I remember being regularly getting getting positive feedback from my art teachers and things like that and i was a relatively advanced kid when i was in in elementary school to begin with so i like to a certain age i was doing pretty well in in most subjects but i really enjoyed that the that i seemed to be particularly good at art at an early age and by fifth grade, I was like, well, I either want to work in TV and movies or I want to be an artist. And I'm the age I am, and I've done both at this point. I'm really happy that that's happened, you know? I think maybe this is true for a significant amount of artists, regardless of contact experience, but I felt like I was relatively earnest about my art or that it had, that it was very close to my feelings and my subjective experience when I was very young or when I was in my teens. And in my teens, I also played in bands. Similarly, like, like there, was, there was kind of an earnestness to what I was doing. Then um, in my late teens, I started working at a, at a museum and at the front desk of a contemporary art museum, basically because I wanted to learn way more about, I had started kind of absorbing uh, everything that I could about contemporary art from, you know, the upper Midwest and feeling like I was in kind of an outpost at best for art. Of course, this is the late 90s, so the world was much less connected then as it is now. You know, I couldn't, who would imagine then that you could just, see into thousands of people's art studios via Instagram these days, you know, that uh, 2000 people would see what you finished that morning by the time that you had dinner that night or whatever. I felt like I was in an outpost and I started working at a museum to acclimate, I think. And there was that process of acclimation where I was like, oh, okay, like, this is what you do. You have to do something that's kind of dry, something that's kind of sarcastic something that there are all these tendencies that happen that are the dominant that are dominant schemes within contemporary art right where where it's about being a comment on something else being satire of something else or being there's so much trends in over many years in contemporary art you know starting say in the late 50s or early 60s at the at, at least where it wasn't the primary experience that you were experiencing when you were looking at the art. You were looking at something that was reflective or a comment of something else. Often that took place within the realm of critique. And so 
I'm, we're critiquing popular culture, we're critiquing politics, we're critiquing this, we're critiquing that. Um, and then art critics would go and critique the critiques, you know? The <laughs> I kind of, I tried to take that up too. It didn't take hold as much, but I tried to take it very seriously. I tried to take postmodernism and post-structuralism and all those isms very seriously through my early 20s, but I couldn't help but keep making art that was a little bit phenomenological. <laughs> um, I couldn't help making art that was trying to express itself in kind of an immediacy that was a little bit informed by having played music, I guess. And so there was, for years, there was a conflict, I feel like, between me recognizing that the gallery world in New York where I had moved and people here and people elsewhere that you don't really get successful within contemporary art unless you can make art that's kind of about dry critique or something like that. Or, or on the other side, is very abstract and doesn't really take a position on anything. That can be very popular, too. And so, you know, both of those things make people feel better, whether it makes the actual artists or the curators feel better because they can say like, oh, this, they can rattle on about, oh, this ties back to the oil corporations, yada, yada, yada. And they can make a spiel for the didactic on the wall, the little paragraph next to the, to the, to the painting or the piece of video art. And, you know, like wealthy collectors, they don't want, I mean, often, they don't want something to be about anything at all. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like they don't want to have to think about what it is, <laughs> you know, or they do. And, and that's also why they, they buy. There is this sense over the years where I realized like, oh gosh, this is going to be difficult because what, what is really close to my experience, A, are things that don't feel like they're happening to many people at all. And B, it's the kind of stuff that nobody wants to talk about. Nobody wants to talk about, and it's funny to me now in 2020, because now it feels like everybody would love to talk about ghosts. Everybody would love to talk about UFOs. If it's in the New York Times or whatever, then it's, if it's made scientific American for Pete's sake, like then it's, it's fine to talk about. And it does feel that way lately a little bit, but that wasn't, you know, it's easy to forget that that was not the dominant par paradigm for decades, right? Well, it killed careers. Peter Robbins, for example, uh, episodes 22 and 23 on this podcast, he tells this story. He had a burgeoning career as a fine artist, and he started depicting UFOs because his sister was abducted in broad daylight, and it torpedoed his career. He was promptly ostracized from that inner circle. So the reservations you felt were not unfounded for most of the history of this. If you're a talented artist who wants to depict the meaning and significance of this realm, <laughs> postmodernism is going to eat you alive up until very recently. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And... I, I think that, you know, there's also examples like, say, Bud Hopkins, right, who was like a pretty successful artist back um, before he really got into 
hypnoregression and these and dealing with experiences and whatnot. And you know, he showed at the Whitney and places like that. And I think he's in the collection of the Whitney and and uh, several other major museums right around here. He was a known guy, and he made really nice geometric abstraction. And I think that that was like a way that he could be successful, that he could have the thoughts that he had while making something that was, you know, had immediacy to it. But like, you know, there, I think that there are coping mechanisms that I see because a lot of artists have had odd experiences. It's the theme of your whole podcast, right? And so, you know, even somebody that like Bud, who was, initially a relatively successful artist here in New York after he came out and became like a successful ufologist i guess you'd say or or the studying experiencers of course his career in art was torpedoed as well no i love that you brought him up peter robbins worked alongside bud hopkins for years both with abductees and regressions but also as bud's assistant in the art studio Peter sat in on, I believe, it was hundreds of hypnosis sessions. He worked on everything with Bud. So Peter's career was derailed, and then he went to work for a painter and abductee researcher. And Bud was almost obstinate in his refusal to allow the phenomena, in his refusal to allow the phenomenon into his artwork. He walled it off. He was in, he was in the abstract expressionist camp in New York. But I think you're right to point out Nothing about the work he did with experiencers ever helped his art career one iota. That may be slowly changing now. Perhaps we'll see a new trend where his work stands on its own apart from the notoriety the field had back then. On another note, it seems to be there is a different set of rules for musicians than there is for painters. There's no stigma if you're Sammy Hagar or Jimi Hendrix or Elvis and you say you received telepathic downloads from aliens, or you were abducted. It's a point of pride for some. But if you're a painter, you are hindered and maligned for making such assertions. It's the kiss of death for painters. Why do you suppose that is? <laughs> yeah, I think it may be changing just in the last few years, but it really, you're absolutely right. that, that I think part of it has to do with that music pretty much everybody agrees that music is meant to be felt in a sense of immediacy and that there's a sense of emotional resonance that's supposed to come from music well not only that but like in the best cases you do feel it immediately right it's it's something that it just it works on a subconscious level and you can't help but sometimes feel the way that you do when you hear a piece of music it's why so many people We'll even talk about like movie soundtracks and be like, oh, it was manipulative. You know, that was a manipulative mu movie soundtrack because they played these strings and it was just impossible not to start tearing up or whatever, right? However, I think, uh, sadly, I think within a lot of art for about 50 years, and arguably you could say even before that, there were, there were strains of this that successful art was about having a sense of remove, that, that there was a sense of, of remove and that when you looked at valuable, quote unquote, good art, that it was about 
critique to the point where it would make the viewer looking at it feel as if they were untouchable. They were unbothered by by the normal day-to-day occurrences. That you'd go into these kind of marble palaces of contemporary art, either in the galleries or the museums, and you would feel elevated. When people talk about feeling elevated or that sense of elevation that happens, with, they're not talking about like moving into their sixth chakra, you know what I mean? (laughs) Often they're talking about, it kind of, it didn't just get into a sense of emotional remove or feeling elevated out of, out of kind of like the common, the commonplace. It also became perverted into a sense of being elevated into being about baseball cards or collectibles. It was more about commodity, the commodity market. And so as paintings became more and more valuable, you had this kind of perverted sense where it became good because it was worth a lot (laughs) rather than something. And so the sense there, like we got further, I feel like as a culture within kind of like academic art, you know, the academia of art here, say in New York, where people are kind of obsessed with looking at the market. They'll say it's not about the market, but it clearly is because it's like, how do you become a successful artist? Well, what are the measures of success? It's like, sure, you can have some museum shows, but then after that, the gallery, selling work, yada, 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 right? And I think that there became like a feedback loop because the reality is is that so much of contemporary art comes down to uh, in the old days, maybe 2,000 people. People joke that may- maybe today it's 40,000 people, you know, because things are so connected. But it's a relatively small club that are kind of deciding, like, whether if you're kind of feeding into the normal, the normal gallery world or the normal museum world, there are certain tastemakers, of course, as there are in lots of, of aesthetic fields. But... I think that that's changing a little bit, and then partially it has it's due to the egalitarianism of places like uh, Instagram, I guess. That there's like, or that there's that there's a form of, I would say democracy, but that's a terrible uh, word to use these days. Um, I that there's <laughs> that there's a that there's a sense that that um, there's real people power behind that even though it's a totally manipulated form of social media, right? And we all know that, like there's all these algorithms and play and stuff like that, but still you can just be a fucking amazing tie dye artist and have like 50,000 followers on Instagram. You know what I mean? You, you can have your own career off of, you know, making ceramic coffee cups. So I think in the last few years, there's, there's been a real shift culturally. And I think that it has a lot to do with the internet and social media, and I'm glad for it. I mean, it's one of the only good things that I can pin on social media, but it is there. You know, it, it has broken down elements because there are increasingly curators and gallerists and people that are saying like, well, what is popular on Instagram or what is popular out there? And that that actually that actually has an impact. Whereas before, there's 
they there was no with, with the exception of some say graffiti artists or say some people that maybe had made some music videos that then started doing video art things like that or say people like Kim Gordon you know from Sonic Youth who started who started making paintings and then so some curators or gallerists said oh well they have relevancy they have like cultural relevancy um within this kind of greater greater form of pop culture well you know i mean we, we knew you and i i'm sure we we both knew as a lot of people did that 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 there's an implicit admission there that like in the old days where they would say like oh they're like relevant or they're culturally and it'd be like well you're you're kind of pointing to the fact that like contemporary art is largely irrelevant to most people and it's because i think that for a lot of years people didn't most people recognized that they couldn't really identify with a lot of the dominant paradigms i went to school long enough to understand at some point i was like maybe Donald Judd and and Dan Flavin are really good at making neon tubes and boxes. You know, maybe those boxes are amazing. You know, <laughs> maybe those are cool boxes. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe they're neat. I don't know why. The rest of the world was like, yeah, the guy made a box. The guy made a field of boxes, and uh, I don't know what to do about that. You know what I mean? That doesn't really speak to me all that much. Not to total shit talk folks like that, but uh, you know, you could. There are much more extreme examples for sure. These days, I feel like it's starting to shift, and that some galleries are like they want to know who's relevant just because they they do have a following or they are saying something unique, and like common people are actually paying attention to them, <laughs> or like they just have these pure numbers out there. And there's still there's still an element where that's kind of gross too, you know, where somebody can just look at how many followers you have on Instagram and say, well, this person is clearly better because they have 25,000 followers, whereas this person has 1,500 or whatever. Guarding this question is the deep history of art, how it originated, the functions it was tasked to perform. Go back tens of thousands of years to the cave paintings, for example. The reasons those depictions were created was intimately tied with matters of life and death, visceral questions of bodily survival, but also the strange haunted quality of life itself. Those paintings are a theater of meaning and seeking. Art was the engine of significance and mystery. And now, what you're describing with gatekeepers, the commodification of art, well, that is the exsanguinating desacralization of humanity's primordial lineage, creativity, art. That's a long way just to celebrate what you shared. Let's shift a bit to the entities you've had contact with. What do you think their concern or interest is in your art and creativity? Do they care about this stuff at all? Has it featured in a dominant way? Yeah, it has. Um, I'll give you an example from last year, I, I'll give you a version of this piece for the show notes, and I'll just take it down from the one public spot that I have it in for myself. I do, I'll give you one example from last year. I, um, I, this was in May, it was, maybe it was two years ago. Here, let's see. Okay, yeah, two years ago. Okay, so 
2018. I was meditating and I had this something contact me. It felt like what we would term as an ET. And it would, and I got a visual in my mind of some craft or some basically a light above the ground. And I got the indication, I saw a light or some kind of energy beaming towards the ground. And I got the association that it would be something that a lot of people would see, that it would, that like thousands of people would see this happen. Okay. And I thought, wow. And they were, and, and the message was like, pay attention to it. You're going to want to respond to it somehow. Like there's, you, you have something to respond to it with. And I said, oh gosh, what's that? I spent about a day thinking, thinking about it. And then the next day I was walking through midtown Manhattan and I was like, oh my God, maybe it's, because at first I thought maybe it was a landing or something like that. Maybe it was like like an aerial type situation, like the aerial school sighting. And uh, and but the beam at the ground the next day it just locked into place. I was walking through Midtown and and I thought, oh my gosh, maybe it's a crop circle. That would make sense. And I came home and of course these days you can look up online whether crop circles has been reported recently or not, you know, that's kind of a, also a, a fun thing about social media or the internet these days. You can, you, you can be reasonably certain about whether something happened or not that way in the usual places. And there was nothing. And I was like, huh, what the hell is that about? Okay. Well, I thought it was a crop circle, but it wasn't. Okay. So I kept kind of stewing on it a little bit. But then the next day I woke up and I checked the crop circle again. And sure enough, the day before, it had just taken a little while for it to get um, uploaded, you know, and for there to be documentation. But it was the first major crop circle of the year. At that time, I was not very well versed in the ways of crop circles. I hadn't really studied it. I didn't have any books on crop circles. There are a couple chapters in a Linda Moulton Howe book. I, you know, I knew some basic information about like, I'd heard about these like blown nodes, you know, and I knew that there are some that seemed to be created in a way that wasn't just about boards. And I knew that some of them were super elaborate. So anyway, I look, look at this depiction and it was, this was called the water strider crop circle. So it appeared in Wiltshire and a place called Willowby Edge, Willowby Hedge, Wiltshire, May 8th. 2018 was the day that it showed up and people almost immediately it it looks like a circle it's kind of got like the seed of life geometric pattern kind of baked into it and it also people commented that it looks a little bit like one of those little pond skippers one of those that can kind of like sit on top of the water walk around and kind of poke their head in and and grab food from right underneath the surface of the water, right? And for whatever reason, like I was like, oh wow, okay, okay, okay. And for whatever reason, like it really resonated. I meditated again and I got the image of the surface resistance of like one of these the legs of one of these water striders, these pond skippers. Okay. Like I got the visual of like the tiny little hairy leg of one of these things being able to resist going down into the water. 
And so I was like, wow, okay. Um, and it seemed very much, again, a contact experience. It didn't seem like it was just coming forth from my logical mind. It seemed like an image that was dropped into my head. So that seemed like confirmation. And so I spent the next few days drawing a few things. And then I came upon this formula. It's a formula that describes how that insect is able to stay on top of the water. I was like, oh, that's it. That's it. It's a formula that describes not just how is it able to stay on top of the water, but how is it able to propel itself, kind of like run or walk on top of the water. And I was like, that's it. That's it. That's it. And so I started designing this drawing based on that idea and with the actual crop circle kind of embedded in the drawing. All right. And I was like, okay, um, I can. All right. And I went with it. And then the day after I finished the drawing, you know, I put it up and then it was a few days actually after I put up the drawing, I started getting a lot of kind of telepathic pings, I guess you'd say. And one of them was kind of indicating that that formula had something to do with plasma propulsion, that there is something about plasma and propulsion that people should look into when they're looking at that formula, as if it was something that could help space travel, and that there was an analogy there with regard to being able to be to kind of exist above the water, there is kind of the idea that somehow this, using this formula for propulsion would somehow get people beyond the problem of, of having, having to like wade through space or something like that. That it'd somehow be able to kind of lift you over into some higher realm, I guess, or something like this. It was a weird set of associations and I'm not clear, but you know, I was kind of responding to it at the time. I was like, kind of like, I'm not your guy. <laughs> I was kind of responding like, like I'm not, you know, I don't work at Lockheed Martin. I don't work at NASA. You know what I mean? Like that, I'm not your guy, but it was coming through. And for whatever reason, sometimes when I make stuff like this, I don't know if it's because I put it up for other people to see online or on social media, or I don't know if it's because there are entities that are, say, looking through me or are able to have some more access to our reality that doesn't necessarily need distribution. That seems possible. It seems that maybe merely by creating something and having it exist in a physical way, in the way of like magical sigils or something like that, maybe that purely through making something physical, it could somehow register to another another entity. Maybe that's there too. I don't know why. All I know is that sometimes I feel like I'm almost being, I'm being strongly encouraged to pursue a line of thinking within what I'm doing. And then if I do it, it seems to be, a, sometimes it's a compounding experience where like what I did was quote unquote on, uh, or on the mark or something like that. And then it'll lead to something else. And sometimes that, that lead to something else is something that seems like it can actually be pursued through visual art. And sometimes it seems like it's something where it engenders a bigger idea that doesn't necessarily 
lend itself to visual art. Like, for example, theories about propulsion or plasma or something like that. Like, maybe I could have pursued that immediately, but I didn't. Do you know what I mean? Teasing apart what they find compelling, what they are motivated to deposit or share in a human being, juxtaposed with your response of, I'm not your guy, (laughs) is a fascinating detail. On the surface, it seems like a mismatch, but maybe when we work to get beyond our anthropomorphic notions of what makes an inspiring origin point for artwork, we start to uncover what motivates or inspires them. They have their preferences, but there can be this funny disjunction, as in, are you putting this in the right mailbox? (laughs) This is not my department. It is funny. I don't know whether in some cases that is a misallocation, but ostensibly it seems intentional, specific. We don't understand why it's a match, but to them it feels like one. When you reflect on this particular instance, do you think the match was on or off? I think it, I think it was a match. Um, I think it was a match. I, I just texted you for like reference images about that crop circle if you have any follow-up questions or whatever about that wow this is wild i'm looking at uh the images interesting (laughs) so (laughs) yeah right yeah i'll put those in the show notes you know i mean one of the things about that drawing is that it's not like it's not really the most beautiful drawing in the world but what i was trying to do was it was like i was trying to answer back i was trying to communicate back in a way, right? I was trying to work within the language that I was being given, if that makes sense. And so I was like, okay, like, um, you know, most of these crop circles are done in this diagrammatic, geometric, graphical way that kind of has like a linearity to it, I guess you'd say. And so I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to put any extraneous information in here. You know, I'm not going to do what I would normally do, which is like what you're kind of taught in school and what you experientially know is prettier. Like, okay, well, how do I deal with the corners? You know what I mean? Like, how do I, what do I do to make variation within this image so that your eye bounces around a whole lot and stays within the confines of the page and things like that? You know what I mean? There are all these tricks that you learn over the years that honestly make a better, a quote unquote, better or or immersive image. And I was like, well, you know what? Like, this is not a time that calls for that. (laughs) Like, I'm going to try to answer this thing using the, I'm just going to, I'm going to try to answer this using the language that I've been given, if that makes sense. Towards like the idea of the matches, I, yeah, sometimes I feel like there, there are matches and sometimes I feel like there are lesser matches. It's interesting because the last few years with me getting more immersed in meditation practice, there are different types of entities that are engaging with me. Or maybe another way to look at it is just that I'm keeping my ears open in that meditative state and then things come through or try to try to speak, you know, for whatever reason. After I did this drawing, for example, like the same entity that kind of came in and seemed very much communicated very much like the mantids do 
often using kind of like these combinations of picture gestures, almost like GIFs and words, like a combination between those two things. That was what was coming through. And then interestingly, after I did the drawing, there was also this other voice that came in and it actually, you know, it might sound crazy as if this whole thing doesn't sound crazy to some people, but um, this other voice came through that was, it was speaking in Latin and it was like a male voice and it seemed like, like a discarnate spirit or something like that. And I started having to write down and it was actually relatively patient and like, I would have to like sit and write down like fucking Latin. I don't know Latin. I can barely order in Spanish. Do you know what I mean? I can barely order at a restaurant in Spanish. Um, and I certainly don't know Latin. So I would have to write all this stuff down. And my partner would see me doing this sometimes because I would just kind of get hit with something. I would be out. There's like a, like a porch area outside of our art studio. I remember just sitting there and kind of like staring at the sun at one point, like you're not supposed to. <laughs> and um and I just got hit and I think that that was one of that was maybe the first time I got hit with it and she was right there with like this message and I was like what the hell is that and I started we kind of ran in and I started writing things down immediately and then you know I'd throw this latin into google translate and I would get these messages that were about travel they were about like propulsion and it was really weird and it was like but this was definitely not that same entity. The entity that kind of gently or not so gently pushed me into doing the drawing at the outset had a very, very specific kind of communication strategy and a very specific syntax. And this Latin presence was not that. This Latin guy, by the way, this, the feeling that I got from this entity was, he was a little like the, personality that was coming through was like a little body there was almost like a sneer to the voice in a weird way that was like kind of like hard to place but i you know i kind of dutifully wrote down what the guy was talking about but the messages were kind of funny because there was like one of the early messages was like you people like a lot of the messages had this kind of like you earthlings you people you contemporary culture this kind of sneery element. It was like, you people think that you can get to other planets using fire and smoke, <laughs> you know? Like that was the tone that was coming through in some of this early stuff. So I was kind of communicating back like, okay, man, well, what would you do? <laughs> and so to your question, like I, there was definitely an element where I was like, it felt like a bad Tinder match. It felt like a bad social dating match. Whereas the other entity was, it was enlightening and it was, you could say it was using me or I was using it, but it seemed like a beneficial experience where I was putting myself into the position of doing an experiment where I was like approaching the page in a different way to communicate information in a visual manner that was more utilitarian. And I experimented with things like that in the past, but it felt like as if it was, it was like a growth exercise, if that makes sense. And whereas this other entity just kind of like wanted to bitch at me a little bit about rocketry for some dumb reason, seemingly because it was maybe like somehow 
able to pick up on this other communication that I was having, if that makes sense. Yeah. That's so wild. <laughs> How did the entity speaking in Latin respond when you came back with, well, what would you do? Anything substantial or just more bitching? It was funny because it's like, it seemed like it was, it mentioned some chemicals and I can't remember off the top of my head what they were. Again, I kind of like went back to him with, I'm not your guy <laughs> kind of thing. You know, now things are a little bit different because, you know, you and I have a mutual friend who is involved in aeronautics in a way. So it's interesting to your point before there's, am I your guy? Am I not your guy? Or are these people having matches or not? Like sometimes that exists beyond time again, not just in a straightforward way where it's like, oh, something's going to happen in two days and then it does. Sometimes this stuff adds up to something several years later where it's like, I couldn't have predicted that I would know somebody that literally founded a space company two years later. How would I have predicted that? None of my friends, I have, I have like one relative associated with my mom who was like involved in the early days of NASA. But apart from that, like I don't really know anybody that is involved with projects like that. So it was strange to me that but no, it's, it kind of makes sense. So sometimes maybe like I should not necessarily be so sure of myself when I say I'm not your guy, because maybe it's just the right place at the wrong time, if that makes sense. It does make sense. The different ways in which these entities inhabit and manipulate time seemingly is important. It's hard to appreciate until you have some experiences where things that happened 10 years ago become pivotal to a life experience much later. The arc is long. I guess they have a facility with temporality that we don't. Yet, some of these things have a delayed pollination. The Latin thing is so funny. <laughs> I haven't heard one like that before. It's a good segue to the next question. How many different varieties of entities have you encountered? How many are long-term relationships or continuous versus one like the Latin entity, which seems more of a random one-off? Absolutely. There were the initial light beings, early, like very early for me. That hasn't been something that has returned in a way that I under, would understand. There's those initial shadow, shadow beings in the haunted house. Something like that popped up later in my teens. I even felt something along those lines when I was doing a project documenting haunted locations during grad school that I talked to you about earlier. So I've kind of happened into shadow beings regularly, but they didn't seem to be a unified presence. It didn't seem as if there was one central shadow being entity from which all other shadow beings emanated. It seemed like that they were all kind of happenstance individuals in a way that I just happened to be kind of ambiently near that I was existing in parallel to. Similarly, like the Latin voice, I guess I've, I've happened upon ghosts relatively frequently, ghostly presences, some that seemed like they were either reenacting things that happened to them. You know, it seems like some are like caught in some kind of a loop 
or that the architecture of the space or that the space itself is kind of reenacting some incidents from years past. And then there are other situations where it seems like there's actually a spirit of a former person that is reactive, that is actually there and sees you and is surprised sometimes that you see it. You know, in my experience, most of the time they've been as surprised, probably maybe even more surprised that I see them than anything else, which is, you know, that's interesting too. There are a couple, the one that, the, the one man said that came by and said, do you have any questions? I got the sense that I've known that, that one for quite a while. And it even kind of communicated to me that I've known it before, maybe even known it before this lifetime. And that maybe I would even know it after this lifetime. And that was humbling and interesting and fascinating, really. There was a deep sense of familiarity with that one, as well as the two that I encountered in Miami, neither of which were this one that that appeared here. I, in the moment, I felt like I was deeply, deeply familiar with with all three of those entities um, and had been for years. I mean, like I've said, I could give you the recording of that hypnosis session, but in in the moment of it, I'm I'm like, oh, I know these guys. (laughs) I know them, (laughs) you know. There's this deep sense of familiarity that's kind of welling up. You know, there's this, it's amazing because, you know, there's the fear, the fear, the fear. And then there's this moment where it's just like, oh, where my long-term memory, that kind of synaptic connection is made where it's like, oh, I know them. And it doesn't, and some people say like, oh, you know, they're feeding you to make you feel good or make you feel bad or whatever. And that happens too, I think. Then there's also the part where like these memory erasures or these, or there's like a deliberate attempt to have these routes for your long-term memory that aren't quite as easily accessible, but they're there. And so they become, when they're relevant, then they kind of appear. So sometimes when situations like that happen, you're all of a sudden you're you have this brief moment where you where you go, oh, I know them from this and this and this, and then after that, you either remember some of that or you don't. Like those beings, they've indicated that they know me from before, me as myself, <laughs> me in this and me in the incarnation that I'm in right now. They know me from before this time, or at least that's what they say. And that they'll know me after this one too. And that could sound ominous to some people, but to me, and maybe it did it to me initially, but it doesn't now. One of the more impactful and interesting statements that I heard from the, do you have any questions, Mantis, was I asked, how many more times am I going to see you? And I, it was, implied you know through my intent through what i was trying to communicate mentally it was it was how many more times am i going to see you during this lifetime that i'm in right now and it communicated back well it depends but i can tell you this i'm going to visit you right before you die you'll see me very quickly before you pass away and i kind of communicated, wow, really? And I had this visual in my mind of me sitting in this chair in this in this room um, that I don't know, 
but maybe it was a creation of mine and maybe it was maybe it was something it was trying to send me from the future a future i don't know but man i was sitting in a chair and i it was a weird thing but i i i had taken a, i had a wristwatch on and i was old and i was sitting in this chair and it was seemed like nice weather outside it seemed like i was in a relatively outdoorsy kind of scenario outside of this basically it looked like a cabin almost a lot of wood and i took off the wristwatch that i had on and i tossed it on the floor and then the mantid showed up like right afterwards it's a really strange it's just this little burst that happened in my head the mantid was like right there in front of me while this was happening like physically and i had this kind of like future recollection almost and it said i'll be i'll be there I'll be there right before you pass away. And I said, really? And, and it seemed to indicate after that, it said, in fact, I'm going there right now after we have this conversation. Man, that is weird. Was there a sense of it being there to comfort you, helping to manage the transition? It did feel like there was an, a therapeutic element that was happening, like it was trying to. And in fact, after that, I... You know, in retrospect, looking at that conversation, I, there's clearly a conversation that happened after I, quote unquote, fell asleep while I was having a conversation with this entity. Okay. And so I don't consciously recall what happened in our exchange after I fell asleep, quote unquote. So that's not entirely clear to me. However, the part that is clear to me is that afterwards, it, it did feel like there was a... um I had a different feeling about this stuff. It wasn't, and it didn't feel like it was, you know, I mean, it, you're, you're right in what you said earlier in terms of like, I think a lot of people do want answers. They do want to have clarity. And the fact that this being was willing to, sh that was up for just kind of showing up one night and it wasn't about, seemingly it wasn't about anything except just fielding my queries was fascinating to me. This is Anonymous Experiencer One's friend, recounting a shared sighting of a triangle craft, and also contact with gray entities in childhood. Here's what I remember, um, roughly speaking. It was a while ago, so I'll say that. And it was also couched amongst quite a lot of bizarre experiences, I guess, because I, I'm sure he may have mentioned to you we were um, exploring haunted facilities and areas so it was kind of at the end of a lot of weird things. So we were driving back from, I believe, the abandoned tuberculosis hospital in Lima, Ohio. <laughs> That's a hell of a start. Yeah. And uh, as we drove, I think I was driving. I'm not, I, you know, I'm not 100% positive about that. But I remember saw it first. I remember that he was kind of like, hey, look at the clouds right there what's going on with that i remember kind of being like what what are you talking about like i'm trying to drive and he was like look over there he kind of you know i think was like you know this set of clouds or whatever and i looked over and i remember thinking well oh wow that looks kind of like metallic or something or like that cloud looks weird it had it looked too geometric it looked kind of just out of place and then we he was like oh my God, this is just like another thing, you know? Cause I think we had been having a lot of weird things going on. So 
he was like, yeah, there's another, this is just, he's like, oh my God, like we gotta pull over. Like I gotta try and tape this real quick um, because part of what we were doing was videotaping ourselves exploring these haunted environments. So we pulled over and jumped out of the car and he fired up his camera and I just kind of stood there and we were kind of like, that looks really fucking weird. What is that? That looks like a UFO. You know, we were like, we we're like, what is it? Like, it just didn't look like it fit in. It didn't look like anything we're like used to seeing pretty big if I remember I think there were lights I think there were like white or yellow lights if I remember correctly uh kind of involved and yeah and we just kind of he ran the tape for however long I don't think we were on the side of the road for super long and then we jumped back in the car and went on our way and I, if memory serves I think we were kind of like talking about it and then we kind of kept checking kind of like kept like peeking out it was in such a place that we kind of had to like lean past the uh top of the car if you will to kind of get a view if memory serves we looked at one point and we're like yo it's gone like what the fuck happened what was the geometric shape of it i remember being kind of triangular or like at least having a point that we could see if i if my recollection was kind of like in the clouds a little so there was a kind of like a piece of it sticking out so i don't know if to speak to the full shape it could have been a parallelogram or something but it looked it looked like a triangle from where we were yeah was it stationary hovering yeah it was hanging out with the clouds like it looked like it was just kind of hanging out hovering just kind of sitting there I, it was bizarre it just it it and it looked like i said kind of metallic like dark grayish, I guess. I don't know, um, something to that effect. And it just, it just was like, like, it just didn't fit in with the 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 clouds around it were like rounded and nimbusy, or however you say. You know, they were kind of like regular, kind of not storm clouds exactly, but you know, they were like, I remember them being kind of gray too, but like different, like lighter white to gray kind of color and more traditional cloud shape. I don't know, for lack of a better description. I don't want to say like Mario clouds, but they were closer to that. How large would you estimate its size to be? It seemed like if it was an, like an object, which I think the only reason that we kind of thought it might be an object was the, the lights, the flickering lights. I think it was probably huge. I don't know, like it seemed like it was probably very big. Like the size of a car or a football field? Uh, yeah, like something like in the realm of like football field or maybe bigger. Um, uh, you know, perhaps significantly bigger. I mean, if it 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 seemed big. It seemed very, like I I hesitate to use the word massive, but it would seem like if that was what it seemed like, it looks a pretty freaking large me and both had some et kind of things going on and that's like an area um, in general i know has had a lot of weird uh ufo sightings and stuff like that worked at a italian restaurant for example near there where we had air traffic controllers coming in for a dinner and the restaurant manager specifically asked me to to not bring up ufos or i would be fired which i thought was interesting <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> just out of the blue? Yeah, he just said it out of nowhere. He was like, he's like there's a bunch of, it was like a bunch of air traffic controllers. He was like, he's like, uh, he was this old Italian guy and he was like, he's like, yeah, there's like air traffic control. He's like, you bring up UFOs and I'm gonna fire you. 
And I was like, I was like, what? What other anomalous experiences have you had? Well, okay, so so when I was young, I remember I have a memory of sitting with my family outside and seeing um, a crazy, I think it was orange and then green, like or something light, like no one could. We were all like, "Whoa, what's that?" And like no one knew what it was. And then we just kind of, um, you know, the the subject was sort of dropped after that. Um, and I always kind of like wondered later, like you know, because everyone kind of acknowledged it, like, "Oh, we don't know what that is." You know, like, that's crazy. You know, I, I remember watching it like way more intently than everyone else and being like, what the fuck is that? Then later, when I was like 10 ish, I, 10 or 11, actually, I guess it would be, I was probably about 11. I moved to the basement in my family's house and there was this whole thing. The first week that I was there, I reported that I had been abducted by aliens and was anally probed my recollection of like what I kind of remember from like the experience if that happened was just that there was like there was a chimney that went to the basement and it felt like there were people coming from the chimney and I remember just feeling like surrounded by them and it's funny because I had kind of forgotten about it and then my sister brought it up like um some years back um, and was like, remember that time you said that? And I was like, oh yeah, I did say that. And like, oh yeah, what do I actually remember? So I don't know, you know, I have my own questions. Like, did it really happen? Was I just playing with them? But then I have this like weird memory that's like kind of, kind of unusual and, you know. Do you recall the appearance of the entities? Oh, they were grace. So that's clear. Yeah, that's super clear. Yeah, I've actually seen like, uh, I've had some experiences when meditating where I thought I like saw them again or like I, 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 like I've had an experience once in meditating where it felt like I saw one and then I had a, a kind of meditation dream thing where it felt like I met one again and it was rather terrifying but I tried to just be like peace because I don't actually necessarily think they're bad. Um, but I think that like my just own mammalian reaction is like, holy fuck, even if it's, even if they're not, that's not like the intention, if that makes sense. Be sure to catch part three of our conversation with Anonymous Experiencer One. To contact him, use the email provided in the show notes. Aliens and Artists is brought to you by The Liminal Muse, offering one-on-one sessions with me, Stuart Davis. Sessions focus on creativity, spirituality, and transpersonal hypnotherapy. Go to theliminalmuse.com to book a session, or check the show notes for our link.
Everything is warm. 